My name is Brian. If we haven't met, I would love to meet you. I'll be in the lobby afterwards. And as, as uh, John mentioned, we are in this teaching series called Exiles, which is, means we're looking through 1 Peter, sometimes like microscopically looking at the Greek, doing some in-depth study. And today we get to a passage that is admittedly an interesting passage. Uh, here, here it's talking about wives and husbands and it uses this word um, that maybe we haven't heard in a long time called submit. It says submit. So anyways, here's the thing, guys. I have to say at the front, be prepared. It's going to be interesting. And then second, we have this principle that I, I think it's a great Bible study principle. In, in interesting, weird passages of Scripture, rather than look away, look closer. Because it's still God's word, even if it's jarring and like made sound different from what we're uh, familiar with. Um, and so I want to invite us all to look closer today. We're going to be starting in chapter 3 and we're moving through verses 1 to 7. And picking it up here, we start in verse 1. I'm going to read the whole thing right now, just so it's kind of like in our minds. And uh, then we'll be going through it in a couple different ways so it says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. There is probably some words in there that you're like, I hopefully he addresses that part. <laughs> wow, okay. What we're gonna do is uh, we're gonna look at that this passage in three different ways. And the first is what I'm calling passage context passage context, okay? As my Bible, as my theology professors would tell me, maybe you've heard this line, there is no text, meaning no scripture, there is no text without a context. Texts always have a context, and that's twofold. It's the literary context, it's the passage of Scripture, the larger passage that you have to interpret it. It's all of Scripture, they interpret it in light of Scripture, but then it's also the historical context. We're going to be looking at, uh, spending some time looking at the passage's context. And then secondly, we're going to be looking at getting some perspective clarity. When you read a passage like this, there are a couple, at least a couple different ways you can interpret it. And I just want to here in this space, name those two different perspectives and give us some perspective clarity. Then third, we're going to be looking at really the heart of this passage, what I believe to be the heart of Peter's message, and I'm describing this as mutual pursuit. So this morning, we're going to be looking at passage context, perspective clarity, and mutual pursuit. First, with the passage context. It's important to note, 
of the first century world that Peter was writing to was incredibly different from our world. Like beyond like didn't have iPhones, Teslas and Netflix. Like it was like a completely different world. Not, not just like the, you know, it's not just kind of they didn't have Amazon Prime. Like they saw things completely differently specifically regarding how men and women were to be understood in the first century. I'll say this, we see things differently today because of the church's contributions to the wider world. So a couple hundred years before the first century, first century is when Peter wrote this, a couple hundred years before that, a Roman writer and philosopher named Marcus Cato, still known, and you can still find his books on Amazon, said this about husbands and wives. I want to say on the front end, this is, it's, it's not right, it's evil, it's to be rejected, but it was a common way of viewing men and women in the first century. He says this, popular writer, buy his books on Amazon and says, when a husband puts away his wife, he judges the woman as a censor would. Now, a censor was somebody who would take, you know, help with the census to let everyone know how many people are in the Roman Empire and has full powers if she has been guilty of any wrong or shameful acts. She is severely punished if she has drunk wine. We're already rejecting this. (laughs) If she has done wrong with another man, she is condemned to death. If you should take your wife in adultery, you may with impunity put her to death without trial. But if you should commit adultery or indecency, she must not presume to lay a finger on you, nor does the law allow it. This is unjust. It is, in a word, evil. But it was also common for women, unfortunately, to be seen more as property than people in the first century world. Aristotle himself, you know Aristotle, philosophy 101, remember that? Aristotle was famous for saying that women were a version of deformed men. Women, you can raise your hand and say, "Uh uh-uh, you know, no. But this was, again, a common understanding in the first century world. It was common for a male Jew to pray in the time of Jesus, I thank God that I am a human and not a beast, a man and not a woman, and a Jew and not a Gentile. This is the world that Christianity came into. And this is the world that Christianity radically changed. And so our notions of justice, our notions of equality, are what they are because of Christianity's contributions to the world. Okay? So into this world, Christianity came, and Christianity said that both women and men had spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14. In itself, somewhat revolutionary to introduce both women and men having spiritual gifts. Into this world, Christianity taught that women were welcomed as disciples of Jesus. Now, I want to spend a little moment on this. In Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to 42, we read a story about Mary and Martha. Maybe you're familiar with it. And oftentimes in the church, the story of Mary and Martha is taught in this way. You know, Jesus comes to Mary and Martha's house. Martha is busy preparing the meal. Mary sits at the feet of Jesus, listening to his words. And we usually teach it like this. Martha is the task-oriented Enneagram 1 or whatever, and and Mary Mary is the contemplative Enneagram 4, and we all have to kind of be a little bit more like Mary, but sometimes we have to be a little bit more like Martha and go figure it out. 
In the first century world, they would have understood it differently. They, would, they weren't familiar with Enneagram and personality types and all that kind of stuff. They would have understood it differently. That it was common for the, market, the demarcation of a disciple was that they would sit at the rabbi's feet. And typically, this was something that a man, a man would do before a male teacher. But here we see something different with Jesus. Mary sits at the feet of the rabbi. And Martha, looking at her, is frustrated, maybe because she's doing the work, but probably also because she is assuming a role that only a man should assume. And here, Jesus, at the end of the story, says, Martha, Mary has chosen what is better. Into the world where Marcus Cato and Aristotle had abusive and what we would call unjust visions of man and woman, Jesus says Mary has chosen what is better. And here, even in our passage we read today, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, 7, it talks about that both men and women are heirs of Christ's riches. It isn't just that the inheritance gets passed along masculine or male lines, but that men and women are equal inheritors of the gift of life. One of the main themes in 1 Peter. And then in Romans 16, 7, it describes that men and women both had opportunities to offer leadership within the church. Specifically in that verse, it's describing Phoebe being a deacon, which is a notable office in the church then and today. And then also it describes a woman named Junia, who is at least described as an apostle or one of the apostles. What we see by looking at scripture is that this vision of men and women that was subversively, revolutionarily like equal in the Roman world that didn't see their equality. Now, Rodney Stark, a historian, um, in his book, Rise of Christianity, he spends a whole chapter talking about women and Christianity, talks about how, why, how it spread so quickly among women and slaves. He, ar- he argues and demonstrates uh, comp- like pretty convincingly that it was because women and slaves had actually access and power and value inside the church. And so when they found access, v- um, value, and power, they're like, this is what I want to be around. And he concludes the chapter, he says, Christian women enjoyed substantially higher status within the Christian subcultures than pagan women did in the world at large. This was especially marked in gender relations within the family, but women also filled leadership positions within the church. Okay, this is why this is important for us to spend some time. You're like, history class, really? This is important why it's important. This is why it's important. Because we need to understand that while it's common for many to say the church is chauvinistic and has held women back, and sometimes that is true, unfortunately, the interesting fact is the whole notion of equality of sexes actually emerged out of the teachings of Scripture and the earliest Jesus followers. Wherever the teachings of Jesus, and this is important for us to note, wherever the teachings of Jesus and Jesus followers have gone, the marginalized, those on the outskirts, those without access to power or resources, have always fared better. Okay? Now I say that not as a look how good we are, because if we look internally, then we know that there is a lot of work to do. But I say that because there is this instinct in the early church that was subversive of what was normal. And it's appropriate and necessary that we value this contribution. 
And it's also important that we understand uh, a passage like I just read in light of the first century context. Because in light of the first century context, a passage like we just read is actually quite revolutionary. Why? Because it's speaking to women, giving women agency to make decisions in a first century world where that was not that common. It's also, uh, and as you can see, giving, uh, giving, making sure that men don't treat their women as property, but as people. This is, this is like the context that would have been revolutionary in a first century world. So what I want to do is I want to go through this passage a little bit, kind of pick out some, th- point some things out that are important for us to note, and then move on to the next section where we're going to look at the different perspectives on this passage. So begin, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. Some of us get stuck on that word submit, but what I want you to do is to look around that word. It says, in the same way. And Peter, when he says, in the same way, he's connecting it with what he said before. Before he spoke to um, those he was writing to submitting or honoring those in elected office. And then he spoke to slaves submitting to to their masters. And and we talked about last week how the New Testament is actually anti-slavery, though sometimes it works within the existing paradigms in, in subversive ways. And then here it's talking about, in the same way, wives submit to your husbands. But it's important to note after that in the same way and submit it comes this words so that okay so there's this so that which conditions the type of submission like if i say go change the oil in your car so that the car doesn't break down i'm saying that so so for a particular reason like if you if you're able to have a car that didn't have oil i'm not now i'm stretching the metaphor i'll back up (laughs) but but the so that conditions the submission so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives. It leaves this question of, is the submission still necessary if the person is won over to Christ? The husband that doesn't believe is won over to Christ. It's interesting. It goes on. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry and fine clothes, Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. Okay, a couple things to note. Peter is contrasting the inheritance that they've received because of what Christ has done on their behalf. He says, this, this inner, inner it's, it's unfading. This, this inner worth is unfading. It's the same word he uses for inheritance earlier on. What Peter is wanting them to know is that their worth, women that I'm writing to, your worth is not, is, not, is not dependent upon how you look and how people esteem you. Your worth is given by God, and so your worth can't be taken away. And then when he talks about a quiet spirit, he's not talking about, about hey, you should, you should not use your words and not use your voice. The word in the Greek of quiet spirit is really this inner confidence of knowing your identity. Going on, verse 5, For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their husbands like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters. If you do what is right, do not give way to fear. We're going to spend a little bit more time on that later on, so just bookmark that. Then it says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives 
and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. Just pause there on weaker partner. It is talking exclusively about physical, like physical attributes. So it's like one of these oddities of nature that men have, you know, and men and women's bodies are generally different. And Peter is just talking about that. When you, the Greek word for weaker pertains specifically to physical weakness. And ladies, he's not saying that you're weak physically. I know some of you are probably stronger than me. <laughs> but he's talking about this generality of men and women that still carries with us today. He goes on, as weaker partner and as heirs with you, this is profound. In a world that treated women like property, he, he's, Peter is recognizing them as heirs, as princesses, as queens. With you is a gracious gift of life so that, get this, nothing will hinder your prayers. In a, in a world where men had all the power, Peter is reminding them that they didn't that there is one above them that will hold them accountable to their actions and will not hear their prayers if they don't heed Peter's recommendations to be considerate and loving towards their wives. That is significant. Okay, what I wanna do now is move to what I'm calling perspective clarity. Like, wh like what are the ranges of perspectives on a passage like this? Because there's a couple, at least a couple different ways to read it. And the first is what I'm calling, well, it's not what I'm calling, I didn't invent this term, uh, complementarianism or complementarian. Complementarians typically believe that men and women are created equal and different, but that there are specific leadership roles in the home and in the church that women should, ex uh, should exercise and that men should exercise. It kind of limits the roles of leadership to women in the home and in the church. Typically, that's what a complementarian believes. An egalitarian um, believes that there are men and women are created equal and different, but that there should be no limit to the ability to teach and exercise leadership in the church. Anchor is a part of a denomination called the Christian Missionary Alliance. Um, we don't always talk about that we're a part of a denomination, but we do like being a part of a denomination because it provides a level of accountability beyond just us and the board making decisions and our, or us and the staff making decisions. We think accountability is healthy. And our denomination is actually in a process of discerning where they will be with regards to complementarian and egalitarian. It's a national conversation. And they're not just like looking at like, who, what would make everybody feel better? They're looking at scripture. What does scripture say? How can we understand it in its context? Not just understand the literal context, but the historical context. At Anchor, I just want to say very clearly that we think the role of women in leadership is vital and necessary. We have women on our board that are serving in incredible capacities, offering leadership to this church in ways that you'd know about and maybe not know about. And we have women on our, on our staff serving in the role of pastor that are offering leadership. And I can say that Anchor would not be where it is in, in, healthy, in the healthy ways that it is without the leadership of wise, gifted women. What I wanna do is something kind of bold um, and just look at this pa passage now through the lens of a complementarian and an egalitarian. You can imagine it being a conversation going back and forth. Uh, uh, we'll, see, we'll, yeah, we'll see where it goes. 
So the complementarian would look at this passage and they would see the first couple words and they'd say, be subject or submit, case closed. Why do we need to keep going? It says submit, come on, end of story. The egalitarian would point to something I mentioned and say, yeah, but it says, it says in the same way and so that. We have to understand the submission is not an uh, exhaustive one-time command for all, but it's conditioned upon a wife in a certain context showing Christ to her husband so that, she might, so that he might come to know Christ. The egalitarian would respond, I'm imagining. The complementarian may respond saying, okay, great, note taken. But look at this passage to Abraham and Sarah as, like, as an example. Particularly, Peter says, it was good when Sarah called Abraham Lord. And the egalitarian would respond, have you looked at the story of Abraham and Sarah? And I just point out, if you are new to the Bible, I just want to say, the story of Abraham and Sarah is in Genesis. And when you look at that story, you see that Abraham and Sarah, it was a much, it was, it was actually, you know, they mutually submitted. Abraham submitted to Sarah and Sarah submitted to Abraham. And in fact, in Genesis 21, God tells Abraham to submit to Sarah. And then Genesis 18:12, which is the passage that Peter's referring to, where Sarah calls Abraham Lord, it's an interesting passage because God has just promised Abraham, we're getting into it, aren't we? God has just promised Abraham that you're going to bear a child in your old age, which is the fulfillment of a promise. It's see, God says it's still going to happen. And Sarah overhears this promise and she laughs to herself. She's like kind of saying, "Yeah, right. Is my Lord going to be able to do that in his old age?" It's kind of funny. She's talking to herself. So it's like a passage where it's not like she's bowing in reverence before Abraham, but she's kind of like mocking him while calling him Lord. Not an example of a healthy marriage, but, but, it's, but it's, it's, it's interesting. The complementarian would say in response to that long-winded egalitarian response, None of this changes the fact that the actual written word tells wives to submit. Come on, let's just get past it. An egalitarian might say, and right before it, it tells slaves to submit to their masters. But we recognize that slavery is an institution that's contrary to the larger scriptural teaching. So we have to understand the context. Here's why I'm going through this kind of different way of looking at it, back and forth. This is a conviction. It's a conviction that I think good Bible teaching, it often does tell what we should believe. And we can't back away from that. But it needs to also tell us how to believe and how to think. In fact, if you're familiar with the word deconstruction, if you're not, let me just explain it. Many in the church are deconstructing their faith or finding themselves outside of the church largely because they grew up being told what to think but not how to think. And so after a large piece of time being told what to think, they finally meet somebody outside of a Christian subculture that believes differently and go figure. And they, they actually are thoughtful and kind. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, they seem like not the evil people this Christian subculture told me that they were. They're nice and kind. And now, now they're wrestling with, why, how do I see the world now? Because they were never told how to think. They were told black and white, simple, what to think. They're bad, we're good. 
It's important, Anchor, that we understand how to think. And sometimes we have to introduce different perspectives and take on the perspective of different people, even if we might not fully agree with that, so that we understand more robustly how to think. Secondly, the reason why I took the approach that I did is because there are both egalitarians and complementarians, and the third option, I don't really care, I just love my spousitarians at Anchor. Some of us are, I don't really care, I just love my spousitarians. <laughs> and we need to recognize that is okay. Here's the thing. I have some complementarian friends and they've got very, very, very healthy marriages. And I've got some egalitarian friends and they've got very, very healthy marriages. And I've got some egalitarian friends and they, are, they love Scripture and under Scripture's authority. And I got some complementarian friends and they love scripture and they're under scripture's authority. And the cool thing is, is in a community like this, there's both types of people. And our conviction more than, than, than that, obviously it has to, has to make sense for you and your spouse if you're married. But, but, but we, our main conviction has to be how can we love each other? Right? How can we love each other? That's what matters most. So what I want to do is I move to, after looking at the perspective clarity, looking at the passage context, I want to move to what I'm calling mutual pursuit. Let me just say, uh, and I can say this now, I've reached that certain threshold of age where I can say this with confidence, but after countless premarital counseling meetings, you know, when you're a college pastor for a decade, you end up doing a lot of those. And hours upon hours of study and nearly 20 years of my own marriage, I can testify that there is what I would call the common wound of a man and the common wound of a woman. In no way am I saying that a woman doesn't feel what a man, what I'm describing a man often feels, or am I just saying that a, a woman doesn't, or a man doesn't feel what, a, what I'm describing a woman feels. Obviously, we all feel these things. They're common to human experience. But I do think there's this common wound of, of a man, which could be summed up along the words of just, do I measure up? Do I have the metal to make it? I was talking to a friend recently about a mutual friend of ours. It wasn't gossip. <laughs> he, his, this person that we were talking about went to Stanford, graduated with honors, has a, uh, had a book published in his 20s, the epitome of like, whoa, he's arrived. And he was, he's, he's a nervous, insecure wreck, wondering if he can make it. There is this common wound of a man. I use that not as a, uh, just uh, that anecdote as an example of many other conversations I've had. And similarly, there's this common wound of a woman, which is, am I known and am I seen? Am I understood? Am I valued? Am I known and am I seen? What I believe Peter is doing in this passage, among many other things, is speaking to the common wound of men and women and how marriage can be a place where our common wounds are healed. The first word there, the word submit, uh, in the Greek it is hypostomoi. Um, and I'm thankful for a leader in my life early in my faith development said he would translate, and looking at it, I don't disagree, that is enthusiastically support. The word at the end of the passage in verse 7, for be considerate, it's in the Greek, it comes from the Greek word to know, and it's nosim. Um, 
you could think of like a good garment, no seam. But it comes to word to know. So it's husbands know and understand, see and value your wife. Wives, enthusiastically support your husband. Let him know they have the metal to make it. Wives or husbands, see and understand your wife. This is similar to what Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. We're in verse, chapter 5, verse 21, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That is the, how it frames this most, the most famous passage of Scripture. That is, it really isn't just a one-way submission, but there is mutual submission. And the submission sometimes looks different. Sometimes it looks similar, sometimes it looks different. Peter is saying, I'm arguing very, something very similar to what Paul did in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. That there, there is this mutual submission that happens in a marriage if a marriage is healthy. I've often looked at a wife-to-be in those premarital counseling meetings that I've described and said, you hold your husband's soul in your hand. He wants to know whether, where he stands and if he has the metal to make it. You can tell him he won't, and you can tell him he doesn't. And with your words and your actions, it will break him. And he will turn into himself, and he will become bitter. And he will become bitter towards you and the world, and he'll still look for someone to fill that need that he has, even as he's marred by resentment. Or you can speak life to his insecurities. You can say, I believe in you. you can, he may shrug it off because he may be too familiar with the other messaging from his head and from others. But over time, if you continually, hippostomoi, if you continually enthusiastically support him, he will bloom, mark my word. He will bloom. He will grow into a version of himself that you really, in your heart of hearts, want him and need him to be. Confident. And likewise, I've looked at the husbands-to-be in premarital counseling appointments and said, you hold your wife's soul in your hand. She wants to know if you see her. If you truly know and understand, she wants to be truly known and understood by you. You can let her know she isn't with your words and your actions, and it will crush her. And she will turn into herself. And she will become bitter towards you and towards others, and meanwhile still look for that real need to be seen and known, for it to be filled. Or you can speak life to her insecurities. You can say, I see you. You can say, I know you. You can do that with your actions. And mark my word, she may shrug it off initially. She may test you to see if you're real, even after you're married. But eventually she'll bloom. She'll bloom into the one that you need her to be and in your heart of hearts desire her to be. Let me just tell you, if you've been married for any more than two weeks, you know something about this. My own marriage, Candace and I, my, my wife, um, you know, we've been through seasons where, um, you know, our 17 years, some of you are like, <laughs> some of you are like long time, you know, perspective. But in our 17 years, we've had seasons where we've operated more out of our, our own wounds than seeking to meet the other in their wound. So there's been seasons where Candace, my wife, has said, 
I really need to be seen. And I'm like, I really need to be enthusiastically supported and kind of miss each other. I'm so glad to learn from those seasons and to offer the experience of that in times of in relationship, but also to be in a spot of health. I want you, anchor, married couples and those approaching marriage to be in a spot of health. I want mutual submission and mutual pursuit to be the norm in your marriages. There's a blessing that I pray um, over, or I pray over couples that I'm marrying, and I want to read it over you, whether you're married or you're not. It's going to be on the screen as well. And so I just want you to receive this as a word for you right now or a word for you in your future. And it's in light of uh, the, the vows and the pledge. So here it goes. This means that husband, when your wife is tired from work or hurting, carry her. Clean up around the house. Pay the bills. Cook the meals. Comfort her. Encourage her where she is gifted. Protect her where she is insecure. Seek to know her as God knows her. Give, her, give your words and your gaze to her. Imagine her as a story that you continue to read throughout your whole life. Let her know that you see her and are seeking to see her. Fan the flames of her passion and calling. And this means that, wife, when your husband is worn from work and stress, carry him, uphold him, pay the bills and cook the meals, comfort him, encourage him where he is gifted and insecure, enthusiastically support him, whisper to the pained and scared parts of his soul that he is strong and that he is loved and let him know you believe in him by trusting his dreams and ideas fan the flames of his passion and calling band can come up at this point you know it's interesting um uh paul in ephesians i mentioned it briefly he calls on husbands to act like Christ to the wife, giving yourselves to, uh, husbands, give yourselves to, to your wife as Christ gave himself to the church. And in this passage, in First Peter that we just read, it's calling on wives to be like Christ to their husbands. Show Christ so that he might see Christ and have his life transformed, speaking to relationships where, where one is a believer and the other isn't. What we learn is, is through Peter and Paul, they're both saying that the husband and the wife are both called to be like Christ to each other. Meaning that our model that we draw from of what it means to be married is not taken from Netflix or the newsfeed or our own broken desires, but taken from the pattern and power of Jesus. We are exiles in this world that doesn't know how to be married. We look to the one who is love and say, you, the one who is love, set the terms for my love. And I ask, let me pray right now for us. Just, you might extend your hands, whether you're married or not. Spirit of the living God, would you mark this community by your love? Would you help us to mutually submit to each other in community and in marriage? Help us to value the voice of women and the voice of men, but to really value your voice and to seek your face. We pray in your name. Amen.